I really like preaching here, actually, because I, I came in here this morning, and it's like, this is like, okay, I'm in the city, and I'm in this pit, this drama pit here. And this, it's like spiritual fight club, right? It's like, it's like Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, and we're going we're gonna to do some, some spiritual work this morning. And so it's, it's a really fun context to preach in. And of course, I love preaching here also because Aaron and Laura are, are dear friends of ours, and there are some familiar faces here. Hattie, hello. Peter, hello. I expected to see some more familiar faces, but I guess that's a good sign that the church is growing and uh, that, uh, that God is expanding his kingdom here in northern Chicago. It's really, really fun to be with you today. So as Aaron said, I have the difficult task of explaining the scriptures this morning and also telling stories about India. Aaron really wanted me to tell stories about India. And so those are two main passions of mine. They're two things that bring me a lot of joy, but I only have 25 minutes. So this is, this is going to be a challenge uh, for me. Uh, the statement of Jesus that we're focusing on today is, um, it's actually, it's, um, in my opinion, after, I, after kind of reading and studying a little bit, it's actually the, the ultimate statement of all the I am statements. First of all, because it's three parts. And three is kind of a number of wholeness in Scripture. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so there, there's, a, there's a sense of completeness to it. But it's also, I think, the most important statement that he makes about himself, about his identity, um, because it's the most uh, complete and clear. Um, all the other ones, I'm a door. I'm the bread, I'm the water. They're all very metaphorical. Um, and and the, first, the first part of it is metaphorical. I am the way. But then he, he skips over the metaphor and goes directly to the heart of the matter. I am the truth. I am the life. Um, and then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, for me, I don't know about you, but for, for, for me, this passage, this statement is very difficult to, it's very difficult for me to grasp the significance of it um, because it's so familiar. It's, it's so familiar to us. We, we grow up learning this in Awana. If you grew up going to Awana in church, if you grew up in the church, you learned this verse, you memorized this verse from early on, and the familiarity of it has kind of, has kind of diminished the power of it in a lot of ways. Also, I think our, uh, for those of us that were brought up in the evangelical church, trained in youth groups um, on how to share our faith and how, how to argue with people and convince them of our point of view, this was always the go-to scripture, right, that you could pull out in your back pocket if you got into a conversation with someone who didn't have the same beliefs as you. You could always say, well, you know, Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But that's not how Jesus was using the statement. And for us to just to, to minimize it to a, a, a go-to verse in our back pocket when we're in an argument is to, to lose the force of it, to lose the significance of it, um, and, and to, to not hear what Jesus wants to speak to us today. So then um, I really began thinking about, like, well, well, what was it supposed to mean? What is the significance of it? Because I'm having a really hard time it's hearing it. Um, we use it as an argument, but Jesus actually had the opposite effect. 
in one of the most intimate and emotionally charged moments of Jesus' life with his disciples, in the upper room, the last words before he's about to suffer and die, the, the verse, chapters 13 through 17 of the book of John, the intimate ministry of Jesus' work with his disciples. So it's emotionally charged moments Jesus is having with his disciples, and he chooses to utter these state, this statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Why does he do that? His intention is to comfort the disciples, to bolster their faith, not to win an argument. But for me, the comfort of the statement isn't immediately apparent. And I'm asking myself, what deep need in the disciples' lives did Jesus intend for this statement to meet? Why should it have brought comfort to his friends in, a, in an emotionally charged time? To find the answer to these questions, we have to go in our way back machine and go back in time several thousand years, actually, 2,700 years ago. Um, and we have to remind ourselves of a few things. Roughly 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene in first century Palestine, um, the nation of, in, of Israel was entering into a protracted crisis of identity that would last all the way up until modern times. In the 700s BC is when the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom of Israel and take them into captivity. A hundred years later, the southern kingdom is captured by the Babylonians, taken into captivity. Seventy years in captivity, they come back to their land, they try to rebuild, but nothing is the same. And then there's 400 years after the close of the Old Testament, 400 years of silence from God. During these 400 years, the main cultural symbols, the main uh, um, symbols that Israel would identify with were slowly, slowly eroded, right? So what was important to Israel? What was the very first thing? The promised land, right? So they're in the promised land back from Bab Babylon, but the Greeks come in and oppress them and dominate them, and then the Romans come in and oppress them and dominate them. The, the promised land isn't their land anymore. Their promised land is corrupted. The second major symbol, the temple, right? The temple and the priesthood, the core of the Jewish person's identity. In those 400 years, that too was tainted. The priests married with Gentile women in order to secure powers of position and to, in order to align themselves with the people who had powered the Greeks and the Romans. And so they lost their spiritual voice of authority, the priests did. And the temple itself, this was the big one. They built a second temple after the first one was destroyed, but God never came. God never filled it with his holy presence. As a matter of fact, Herod's temple that he built that was standing in first temple for Judaism was basically just a political act to win the Jews over to his side um, to secure his power in the area. And then you have the third major symbol, right? The one, everything else falls apart. At least we have this, the Torah, the law. But that too was under fire in the first century 
for a Jewish person. The Sadducees were interpreting it the way they wanted to interpret it. The Pharisees were interpreting it their way. The Essenes were interpreting it another way. And so the, the Jewish identity was in crisis. And there was basically only one thing left to cling to, one kind of um, thread that kept the whole thing from being torn apart. And that thing was the hope of the Messiah. So we don't, have, we don't have our land, we don't have our temple, we don't have really our law, it's all under fire, but at least we can hope that in the midst of all this terribleness, that God is going to send the Messiah, and he's going to put all the wrongs to right, and we will be unified, and we will receive all these important symbols in our life back, and God will you know, infuse them with new meaning. Tragically, there were only a small few of people who saw the Messiah for who he was. Sorry. <laughs> a few who, who went all in, you know, in poker. They went all in. They left their jobs, uh, left their families, because what they saw in Jesus was so powerful for them. Um, they left those things to follow him. And so if you turn to John 13, 33, which is actually where we're going to pick up our story, it's not in your pamphlet, and if you don't have it, that's okay. I'll just, I'll point it out real quick. But there's some important things that are said before we get to Jesus's I am statement in John 14. So the emotional state that I just described to you for Israel is the emotional state of the disciples except for the fact that they believe that they have found the Messiah. But then they're faced with this crushing news in 1333. Jesus says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. Where I am going, you cannot come. The disciples' identity is rocked to the core. You can hear them thinking like, what the heck? No land, no temple, no law, and now no Messiah? It doesn't make any sense. They're dumbstruck. Jesus announces he is leaving, and then he gives the disciples a new command to love one another, right? But Peter totally glosses over the content of verses 34 and 35 and, and says, wait, wait, Jesus, wait a second. Where are you going? Why are you leaving us? Why can't I follow you? We can imagine their feelings at, that they're feeling in this moment, right? They put all their chips in this, on the table, all their hopes in this one person, and now he's leaving. Feelings of abandonment. If all our traditional pathways, the land, the temple, the law are corrupt, how can we get home to the Father God, especially without the Messiah? Imagine their confusion. Who, who's got the answers? Do we go to the Romans, the Sadducees? Based on Jesus' ministry, certainly not the Pharisees. We can't, we can't find any answers there. Imagine the cloud of despair that hung in their minds. If the law is powerless to make us righteous, what hope do we have of being raised to eternal life? Only the righteous would be raised to eternal life. Only the righteous would be rewarded with the quality, the essence of life that God lives all the time. And if the law is, is corrupted, 
or is powerless to make us righteous, then what's going to happen to us? So the state of the disciples' soul in this moment when Jesus says these words, it's orphaned, it's confused, and lifeless. The very moment before Jesus utters his most clear and complete statement of his identity in the scriptures, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, the disciples are feeling like they have lost theirs. And as I, as I kind of entered into the emotion of this, I couldn't help but see the parallels um, in my work in, in the country of India. I love India with all my heart. Um, and so, and, but I'm going to say some things that are very critical about it, but I want to stay up front that I love India to the point that when I'm talking to people about India, they get excited about it. They love it. Uh, they want to go, and then they go, and they're like, you did not tell me about any of this in front of me. You know, like, this is not the picture that you painted. But like the disciples, there's a palpable sense of spiritual desperation in India. As soon as you step off the plane, you sense that orphan spirit. You sense the spiritual confusion. There's death all around you. E. Stanley Jones, the 20th century's foremost missionary to India, wrote, the Indian people are the most God-stirred people on earth. And he's right. In the midst of all of this yuckiness, there's this hunger, this thirst for God in, in, in the people of India's heart. India is saturated with spirituality. Idols, shrines, temples, sacred trees, far more ubiquity than churches in Wheaton. I mean, really, every, on every corner, there's, there's some sort of shrine, there's some sort of idol, there's some sort of sacred thread tied around some sort of thing. Spirituality is everywhere. You're checking into the hotel, and it's not unusual to, to get into a spiritual conversation with the clerk who's making copies of your passport. There are spiritual people hungry for God. Right around the same time that Israel fell to the Assyrians, India began a similar crisis of identity. What happened was is the, the holy people, the high caste Brahmins, um, people that were really serious about finding the truth, they were disillusioned with the idolatry of Hinduism, um, and, and they were uh, frustrated with the powerlessness of their religious rights to, to expiate their guilt and to deliver them from the doom of reincarnation. In, in New Age teaching, reincarnation is kind of this good concept, right? In Hinduism, reincarnation is, a doom, is, is like a, a, you're, you're being doomed to endless cycles of living, dying, living, dying, until somehow you get, get out of jail free by doing enough good deeds or whatever. Anyway, so they were disillusioned with, with this, and they decided to flee to the mountains and find a more pure form of spirituality through meditation and yoga. And during this time period, all sorts of offshoots of Hinduism sprung up. Jainism, Buddhism, all sorts of different things like that. So Hinduism was in this crisis of identity. The interesting thing is that all their meditation and prayer led them to the realization that they were powerless to liberate themselves from sin and shame. Uh, the Vedas, which are the most kind of the most holy Hindu scriptures, 
ancient stuff, like two, over 2,000 years ago. One of, the, one, of the, one of the rishis writes, I am a sinner, a doer of sin, a sinful self, born in sin. Oh God, save me and take away all my sins. This is the realization that they've come to after fleeing to the mountains, meditating, doing yoga, trying to find the truth. To this day, Hindus sing a mantra that monks chanted uh, way back then. They sing it at the beginning of their worship. Asatoma Sadegamaya. From untruth to truth, lead us. Tamasoma Jyotiragamaya. From darkness, lead us to light. Mirtorma Amritamagamaya Amritamagamaya From death, lead us to immortality. That was the cry, that is the cry of Hindu's heart. The religious elite in India are desperate for liberation from the cycle of reincarnation. But your average person in the villages of India have a more immediate need. They're desperate for deliverance. On one of our first trips, we, uh, we visited a house in Boldana. How am I doing on time, by the way? Sorry, I, I forgot to look. We're doing okay? Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> one of our trips, we visited this house. Uh, the city was called Boldana. Hattie's actually been there. It's one of the most spiritually oppressed cities I've ever been to in my life. Anyway, as we were sipping chai in this household, the homeowners began to open up to us, and uh, they asked us to pray for them. And what was happening was these evil spirits were tormenting them in their home. Um, They didn't know how to stop them, and they were afraid to go to sleep. When they would sleep, their son especially would feel this weight on his chest um, and wake up just with like all this anxiety. Um, one night their son woke up and was violent and angry and it was all the father could do to hold him back from throwing himself off the second story balcony of the house. There was a tree in their side yard that was haunted. I don't know how else to say it. They would hear voices coming from it or feel an evil presence at night when they walked past it. As they were sharing these things, you could see the, the concern and the exhaustion in their face. They were desperate to get a good night's sleep. On our last trip to India, just in January, we met a woman named, named Susma. Several years ago, Susma was present at the death of her sister who was blind. And for whatever reason, at that moment when her sister died, a door was opened up into Susma's soul. I don't know why. And an evil spirit attached itself to her. And she was struck from that point forward with, with fits of blindness. She would be, she'd be going about her work, and then all of a sudden she'd be struck blind and and you know, couldn't find her way back home or couldn't, couldn't, couldn't look after her, her son, her child that she was with. So she was terrified. She didn't realize it was an evil spirit. So she went to, they, her family spent money on, on doctors that they couldn't afford. The doctors came back with no medical reason why she should be having these tr- troubles. When the doctors couldn't give her any answers, she um, went to the different Hindu temples and paid the priests more money that she didn't have to do, um, to do rituals for, for her to pray on her behalf. None of them 
could deliver her from her torment. So finally, out of desperation, she went to the local witch doctor in her village, and he's like, oh yeah, just sacrifice some chickens, and that'll take care of it. Sacrifices the chickens, nothing happens. He's like, well, maybe you need to sacrifice a little bit more. Sacrifice some goats, more money spent, more sinking deeper and deeper into debt. And every time she sacrifices, every time she offers at another idol, the, um, another spirit is attached to her. So by the end, she's in a des- more, more desperate situation than when she began. Sadly, these two stories are typical, not exceptional, all throughout the villages of India. The Hindu people are desperate for liberation and de- deliverance. And I hear these types of stories all the time. E. Stanley Jones records the insights of an Indian college student written in a letter. There are powers too great for our frail ugh. there are powers too great for our frail being. And I wish then that there were a God who would be kind to me, who would feel my weaknesses, and who would extricate me from the meshes of sin and temptation. The need for Jesus' comfort and encouragement is universal. The longing of Israel and the longing of India, India illustrates what we all know, what we've all experienced, the feelings of orphanhood, confusion, lifelessness, despair. Our hearts identify with, with Philip's exclamation in our reading this, this morning, right? We cry out, Lord, just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Help us get back to the one that means the world to us, that is our life, and that, and we'll be satisfied. In the midst of the, of the trouble, the emotional turmoil that we feel, why is this clear and complete declaration of identity comforting? Why does, why does Jesus' statement bring us comfort? Jesus knew that the power, uh, the, the disciples' trouble, trouble and confusion had was to distract them from the very truth that they needed to realize, that they needed to hear. In the midst of our pain, he knew that they would be tempted to look past him, to look around him, to look anywhere but at him. And so Jesus wants to, he uses the the declaration to focus all of their attention on him. Jesus is in effect saying, You think there is no solution, but take heart. You already know the answer, and guess what? The answer is standing right in front of you. You're looking at the answer. Thomas, why are you imagining a dusty road trailing off into the horizon? Look to the person in front of you, not for a path. Friends, why have you put your hope in your good deeds or meditation or animal sacrifices. Haven't you seen enough of me to know that it's not what you do, it's who you know? When Jesus says, I am the way, he is saying that the traditional religious and cultural means to reach the Father are dead. Whether you are a law-abiding Jew in the first century or a Brahmin Hindu monk or a straight-laced Anglican, Knowing how to walk on the path is not the same as knowing the correct path. Jesus is shouting. He's jumping up and down. He's waving his hands in front of the disciples' faces. It's me, the truth. Sorry, it's 
standing before you is the way, the bridge that connects you back to the Father. And he's like saying, it's me, the truth, the fixed point of reality. Among all the false narratives that you hear, I'm looking you square in the eye. Right in front of your face is the life, the wholeness, abundance, and the joy you are longing for. Peter, Thomas, Philip, Emmanuel Anglican Church, you know the one standing before you, and knowing me is enough to silence your loudest fears and satisfy your deepest desires. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In this statement are hidden two of the most profound theological truths the world has ever known. The first one is this. Are you ready? This is big. Jesus is the incarnated revelation of God. He is the Father in human form. He's everything that we're longing for in human form. He says as much in verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. To have an intimate knowledge of Jesus, to really experience him as the way, the truth, and the life is to have an intimate knowledge of God the Father. E. Stanley Jones writes, we believe that God is Jesus everywhere and Jesus is God here, the human life of God. The greatest news that has ever been broken to the human race is the news that God is like Christ. Think about that. The greatest news that has ever been broken to the human race is the news that God is like Christ. The second big theological truth is that Jesus is the redemption of humanity. All that we need for liberation and deliverance, all the truth, all the life, the presence of God we are longing for is found in Jesus. Jesus makes the connection between the knowledge of God and salvation explicit in 17.3. Now this is eternal life that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Sorry. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus' very name, the essence of his presence, is enough to secure our eternal redemption. It's enough to deliver us from that orphan spirit and bring us back to the Father. It's enough to be our compass. He's enough to be our compass amidst all the deceiving worldviews that we encounter. He's enough to be the life, the fullness of life that we are longing for. I'm happy to report that our friends in the house discovered this reality. So as we prayed for our friends, Jesus revealed to us that the house had a history of black magic. And so we started asking the, the homeowners some questions, like, what's the history of this place? What happened? Well, come to find out, the family that lived there before had hired a witch doctor to come in and 
do rituals and things like that over the house. And at every corner of the foundation of the house, the witch doctor had, this, the black magic in India is weird, they, but they use limes and chilies. Limes and chilies are signs of black magic. Anyway, so the, the witch doctor had, had buried these limes and chilies at, every, at the four corners of the foundation of the house. And so as we prayed a little bit more, we really felt Jesus was telling us, go to the corners of the house. Pray over the corners of the house. Break the curses that have been spoken. Declare the name of Jesus over those places. So we broke up into teams and, and surrounded the house and, and did, did that. A few days later, we visited the house again, and our friends were ex- excited to report that the prayers, that through the prayers, they had had some of the best sleep in their lives that night. The fear and the evil presences were totally gone. In the span of 30 minutes, Jesus' name was enough to break years of torment for that family. And the cool thing was is that a couple years later, we actually had our outreach team living in that same house doing outreach from, from that household, which is pretty cool. Susma, the woman who had the fits of blindness, also learned the full significance and power of Jesus' identity. In a, in a state of sheer desperation, she decided to visit a Christian fellowship in her village because someone had told her that they had heard that people went there and they were healed. The cool thing was is that the day that she decided to visit was the very first day that, we, that Carrie and I and our team visited the same fellowship. So we're coming to a close with our, with our service. Susma's been listening intently this whole time. We have no idea who she is. We have no idea what her story is. We start closing with prayer and worship, and she starts rocking back and forth, and she takes her hair out of her ponytail, which if, if you know anything about Indian culture, women do not wear their hair down or unbound in public. Um, and so she starts rocking back and forth and takes her hair out and is swinging her head around, and she's manifesting all these demons that have been troubling her for so many years. And we don't know what to do. I mean, we don't speak Hindi we don't know any of her backstory. We don't know what's going on. And so, you know, people just gather around her and just start praying the name of Jesus over her. In the name of Jesus, be delivered from these demons. In the name of Jesus, demons, get away from her. Stop troubling her. Just trying to say the name of Jesus as much as we can because we don't know what else to say, you know? And she would get violent when we were praising and kind of try to attack people. And then after a while, she would kind of go limp and be at peace. After a few times of this, we realized like, oh, there's multiple demons here. We, we, we didn't even know what was going on. And so we just kept going, kept going, kept saying the name of Jesus. She'd get violent. She'd be at peace. The second to the last demon to leave was like controlling her, her throat and her tongue. She couldn't speak any words. She couldn't say anything. We pressed in, praying for her, praying for the demon to let go and to leave her body. And finally, she could speak the name of Jesus. Um, the demon left, and she could, she could now say her own words. So then we're trying to get her to say Jesus, because if you can get the victim to say the words Jesus, it goes a lot faster than if you're saying it on their behalf. Anyway, so, she, you know, she, so finally she gets to say it, but then she's like shrieking, and she's wailing, and she's like, my eyes, I can't see anything. They're, my eyes are burning. And it's like the very first demon to enter her is the very last one to go. And finally, at the end of about 60 minutes, she goes limp, her eyes clear up, 
She puts her hair back in her ponytail and looks around, and she has no idea what has just happened in the last 60 minutes. We left. We prayed for her. We gave hugs. We hugged her, and then we left. But a couple weeks later, I got a picture from my friend who helped plant that church. And he's like, it's a picture of Susma and her husband and their son. And it was like, I hope you remember this woman because um, today, you know, she, she became a follower of Jesus and today we're baptizing her. Um, and so for Susma, Susma had met her peace. Susma had met her deliverance, her healing. There was no doubt in her mind about the power and the significance of Jesus' identity. The other names of her gods were powerless to free her, but the name of Jesus delivered her from years of torment in the span of 60 minutes. And so as we close, I just want us to take a moment to close our eyes and to hear God's voice. And I have a couple questions I want you to think about. Has the familiarity of Jesus caused you to miss the full significance of his presence in your life? Has the familiarity of Jesus caused you to miss the full significance of his presence in your life? In the midst of your troubles, your doubt, your confusion, are you looking past Jesus instead of at him? What fuller revelation of the Father are you needing Jesus to show you in this moment? Secondly, what affirmation of redemption are you needing Jesus to speak to you? The disciples needed to hear that he was the way. Some of us here might need to hear that he's the truth or the life that they're searching for. I don't know about you, but for me, I often need to hear that Jesus is my purity. By his body and his blood, I have the full assurance that I am able to draw near to God when my conscience is guilty or my body is impure. What hope of redemption do you need to hear from Jesus this morning? Father, we thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your presence in our lives. And we confess, Lord, that in, in the midst of our trouble, insecurity, confusion of our identity, 
that, Lord, oftentimes we look around you and past you when you're inviting us to just to focus on you, to see you for who you are and your full significance. The revelation of God, the destination that we're all longing for, and our redemption, our hope, our hope for salvation, our hope for eternal life, life with the Father, reunited, reconciled, clean. Lord, many times we miss you because of our trouble and our anxiety. So we pray, Father, that this morning you would speak to us, that, that Jesus, you would reveal to us something new that we need to know about your character, about your significance in our lives. And we invite you also to speak words of redemption and hope over our lives. Show us how you want to help us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.